Back in February, for our annual Darwin Day service, I preached a sermon inspired by the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. How many of you have read some or all of that book? So many of you have. I recommend it if you haven't. It's by uh, Yuval Harari, a professor of world history. The book wrestles with how we humans have come to reach our present state. To take just one data point, a mere 150,000 years ago, there were about one million, with an M, one million humans wandering around this planet. Today, there are more than 7.3 billion of us, with more than one new human being uh, being added to the total each new second. So what does the future hold? Will we continue to grow only in number and power as a species in a way that increases wealth inequality, that exacerbates climate change, that speeds the rate of extinction for other plants and animals, or will we grow in wisdom and responsibility? As part of answering that question, Harari has now released a sequel titled Homo Deus, A Brief History of tomorrow. The Latin name for our species is, of course, Homo sapiens, meaning wise human. Harari's title, Homo Deus, means God-like human. And it invites us to reflect on the ways that our increasingly God-like powers as a species have both tremendous promise for good and tremendous potential for harm. As I read Harari's book from a Unitarian Universalist perspective, a line from one of our hymns kept coming to mind. In 1960, immediately after delegates from the American Unitarian Association and the Universalist Church in America, finally, after a hundred-year dance of flirting with one another, finally voted to consolidate together into the Unitarian Universalist Association, they sang hymn 145 from our gray hymnal as the processional hymn has those two groups who had met separately processed in together for a celebratory service. Verse 3 of that hymn is particularly resonant with Harari's book. It says, A freedom that reveres the past but trusts the dawning future more and bids the soul in search of truth adventure boldly and explore. As a religious movement that seeks to live responsibly and well in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world, what are some of the potential trends that we need to be preparing for and potentially helping shape? There's only so much that I can cover in the space of one sermon. As my professor, one of my professors used to say, sermons should be about the sacred in about 20 minutes. But there will be a few more opportunities to explore these questions in the coming year. Starting in mid-September, I'll be facilitating a six-week class here at UUCF on Tuesday evenings on the subject of bioethics, and there'll be a uh, sermon at the beginning and end of that um, class on Sunday mornings. And in the spring, I'll be preaching a three-week sermon series on artificial intelligence, human rights, and global population. Looking to the future, one of the major trends that Harari foresees is what he calls a potential new religion of dataism. Dataism. What some of you may recall, some of you may recall a sermon I preached back in December on what is religion anyway? One of the many definitions of religion we explored is from the 20th century theologian Paul Tillich, who argued that something is a religion or functions as a religion if it is an ultimate concern 
of an individual or a group. From that perspective, Harari is correct that there is a growing fervor around data collection that could be building a future religion of dataism in effect. Uh, your data collection, data management, data analysis, uh, what's increasingly religious for adherence of what is sometimes called the quantified self movement. Fitbits, for example. Anyone wearing a Fitbit? Testify. All right. Good. Uh, Fitbits are one among many wearable devices that collect data, things like number of steps walked, heart rate, quality of sleep, steps climbed, other personal metrics involving fitness. Those of you with iPhones may or may not know that if you click on that heart icon on your home screen that says help, Apple is collecting as much as possible of that same data about you, depending on how much you carry your iPhone. They are definitely tracking it if you have an Apple Watch, right? Uh, which is both quite useful and ripe for exploitation. I suspect there are equivalent functions on Android and other devices. Uh, since we're talking about George Orwell's 1984 um, in the uh, congregational conversation after the service, some of you may recall back in 1984, Apple Computer made an infamous or uh, famous Super Bowl advertisement for the Mac that said 1984 won't be like 1984. The ad subtext was suggesting that Apple computers were freedom from Big Brother. And who was Big Brother? IBM, right? The IBM PC. Now, of course, Apple is becoming a little Big Brother-ish. To say more about the potential promise and peril of personal data collection, consider a study that Facebook recently conducted on more than 86,000 people. The same 100-item questionnaire, a personality questionnaire, was completed by three different sets of people. Individuals about themselves, work colleagues, friends, and family members and spouses about that individual, and uh, a Facebook algorithm about that individual. The same 100-question personality questionnaire. Then the results were compared. The Facebook algorithm predicted the volunteers' answers about their personality based on monitoring their Facebook likes. Uh, you know, which web pages did you click like on, the thumbs up, did you, which images, which um, clips did you tag with the like button. Um, all those personality quizzes that people take, you know, which Harry Potter character am I, which Mad Men character am I, those are especially delicious to Facebook for selling ads about you. Uh, amazingly, the algorithm needed a set of only 10, one zero, 10 likes in order to outperform the predictions of work colleagues. I was uh, hearing someone talking recently about this new P Twin Peaks series that's out on Showtime, and they said that there was this work colleague that they just never got along with, but as soon, but one day they saw some sort of Twin Peaks memorabilia on their desk, and all of a sudden they've gotten on famously ever since. It was that one little bit of data that just unlocked them understanding one another's personalities. Um, Facebook needed 70 likes to outperform friends on the personality um, test about another person. It needed 150 likes to outperform family members and 300 likes, 300 likes to outperform spouses. In other words, if you happen to at some point have clicked a total of a cumulative total of 300 likes on your Facebook account, you know, or Twitter, this all can apply to other social media platforms. Facebook's algorithm can predict your opinions and desires on the whole better than most husbands and wives. 
I've been on Facebook for more than a decade. You can think about what's true for you. I would guess I make well more than 70 likes in most weeks. Now, I get a lot of benefit from Facebook, um, increased connections with family and friends and colleagues, um, increased awareness of trends that are of personal and political interest, but we all need to be increasingly aware of the snowballing implications of the information that most of us are giving away. To name just one among many implications, that Facebook study implies that in future U.S. presidential elections, for example, Facebook could know not only the political opinions of tens of millions of Americans and then sell ads to candidates about them, right, in a very segmented, targeted way, uh, but also who among them are the critical swing votes and how those votes might best be manipulated or swung, potato, potato. As some of you may have seen in the news for the past few months, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's co-founder and chief executive officer, has been in the process of visiting all 50 U.S. states. During his visits, he's been doing very similar activities as candidates for political office, you know, eating whatever the local cuisine is, shaking hands, kissing babies, doing all the things. He may have nothing more in mind than better understanding the many different lives of Facebook users across our country in order to better bolster his product, sell more ads, make more money, or maybe he's running for president. I don't know either way. But I invite you to consider this quote from Harari, which lands somewhere between the flippant and the profound. He writes, in the heyday of European imperialism, conquistadors and merchants bought entire islands and countries in exchange for colored beads. That's overly simplistic. But he says, in the 21st century, our personal data is probably the most valuable resource that most humans still have to offer. And we are giving it to tech giants in exchange for email services and funny cat videos. <laughs> They're funny cat videos. I mean, I'll give them that. But uh, that being said, there are positive benefits. Based on monitoring Google searches, Google flu trends can already give a warning about flu outbreaks 10 days before traditional health services. 10 days before. It would be even more accurate, of course, if Google could search private email to, you know, for, Google, for trends instead of just Google um, searches. So how much privacy are we willing to give away for, you know, various information? Or consider the forthcoming potential of autonomous cars. If we were collectively willing to give up the privacy of our location, which we've already done anyway if you have a smartphone or a smartwatch or whatever, uh, and let algorithms know in advance where we are and where we plan to go in a given day and when we want to get there, as experts estimate that we could replace one billion private cars, which spend most of the time sitting around unused, with 50 million communal cars who would be optimized by algorithms. You would, you know, get a text that says your car will be there in 20 minutes, whatever. We would also need far fewer roads, bridges, tunnels, parking spaces, less time in traffic. All those things could be optimized if we trade our privacy for it, right, and our, and our control. To give another example along those lines, how many of you have ever used Google Maps or Waze? How many of you knew if you've ever used Waze that is owned by Google since 2013, right? Okay. <laughs> Uh, I was bought by Google. So when I'm driving from even familiar roads, I sometimes turn on Google Maps because it lets me know if there's an unexpected traffic backup for any confluence of reasons and what my potential options might be for rerouting. This app has frequently saved me lots of time. More than once, I've ended up stuck in traffic because I didn't have it on, right? I'm on a familiar road. I know where I'm going, but I didn't know there was a wreck coming. 
Uh, of course, when I have it on, I'm giving Google lots of data about myself, where I stop, you know, all those sorts of things. But my larger point is actually one level beyond that. Currently, all the various mapping apps give control to individual drivers. So they present the situation and ask, do you want to take this alternative route, yes or no? But some of you may have experienced that this can cause a bunch of people using the same traffic app to all of a sudden cause a secondary traffic jam on some side road that nobody ever uses. The next generation of mapping apps may try to think for us. Uh, maybe it will only uh, inform half the drivers that there's a wreck and there's this alternative route and keep it secret from the other half, thereby pressure will actually ease on both routes, right, if it's thinking for us. Uh, more perniciously, maybe the better routes will be given to users who pay extra for the pro level, right? That will happen. It's coming. I'll give you just one more example of the many different ways that a religion of data that worships and gives everything over to data um, could take us in the future. Uh, people may one day in the not-too-distant future find themselves picking up a smartphone and, Apple, and asking Apple's Siri or Amazon's Alexa or Google's Assistant or Microsoft's Cortana, you know, depending on your corporate overlord of choice. <laughs> and you may find yourself asking Siri slash Alexa slash Assistant slash Cortona, who should I marry? And you might hear this answer. Well, I've known you since the day you were born. <laughs> that sound a little like God to anyone else? <laughs> I have read all your emails. I know your favorite films, the one you actually watch, not the ones you tell people you watch. I know your DNA, your entire biometric history of your heart. I have exact data about each date that you went on. And if you want, I can show you second-by-second second graphs of your heart rate, your blood pressure, your sugar levels when you went on that date with John compared with when you went on those dates with Paul. You were wearing that smartwatch during... <clears throat> or is it now an implant, right, that's with us all the time? Hashtag 1984, we'll talk about it. It continues, naturally, I know them as, I know them, John and Paul, as well as I know you, right? Based on this information and on my superb algorithms and decades worth of statistics about millions of relationships, I advise you to go with John with an 87% probability that you will be more satisfied with him in the long run. Indeed, I know you so well that I know you don't want to hear this answer. Paul is much more handsome than John, and because you secretly give external appearances too much weight, you secretly want me to say Paul. But my algorithms, which are based on the most up-to-date studies and statistics, say that looks have only a 14% impact on the long-term success of romantic relationships. So even though I took Paul's looks into account, I can still tell you, you would be better off with John. <laughs> this sort of dating, big data style, may or may not sound appealing to you. But, if you. but you might ask if it might be a helpful perspective to take into consideration irrespective of whether you decide to follow its advice. As we'll discuss further in the congregational conversation after the service about Orwell's 1984, big data also has the potential to create big brother of an Orwellian police state. 
This sort of totalitarian regime would not only constantly monitor our bodies and minds, providing us with the information as we want it for self-optimization when we're feeling like it, it would also seek to use that data of monitoring our bodies and our minds to control and regulate our every movement, even our every thought. It's what Orwell called a thought crime regulated by the thought police. There's a lot more to say about all of this. Um, there's a lot of fear mongering. For now, I'll say this, though. Uh, there's a lot of fear mongering happening uh, these days around immigration. But I invite you to consider that all that energy might be more fruitfully spent planning for a transition in which not immigrants, but robots and other forms of artificial intelligence really are coming for your jobs. I could go through all the ways that companies are seeking to mechanize, I mean, ways we've already seen, you know, checking out at the grocery line, you get increasingly more ways to check out automatically, robotically, and increasingly less human tellers. So I could go through all the ways that uh, companies are seeking to mechanize the work, not only of cab and bus drivers, of telemarketers, of insurance underwriters, of sport referees, of cashiers, of chefs, of waiters, of tour guides, of construction laborers, of security guards. Those are all... 100% dead, locked on target to be taken over by robots um, very soon. But also of doctors, of pharmacists, of teachers, of music composers, of artists. I, you know, Harari's got lots of uh, really um, sobering stories in his book about you know competitions where they're like, oh, I'll be able to tell the composer you know of this, the human composer from the people can't tell the difference. Instead, I'll turn the mirror on myself. So I can tell you all about that. You can read about it if you want. Imagine the minister as hologram. So instead of me, what if you literally couldn't tell the difference of it being me versus a hologram? You know, I hear sometimes from those of you, I wish we could have two of you. You may can actually have an infinite number of me. Or what it would actually be is someone far better than me, right? Uh, <laughs> Uh, so uh, pastoral care by Android. So that might seem like, oh, I wouldn't want that. But what about someone much more than a human who is programmed to read your facial expressions and tell based on an algorithm to tell you exactly what you most want to hear and remembers precisely everything you've ever told that Android? It's, it's coming, um, whether it's good or not, and then how we want to control it. So this is where Harari's dataism, his religion of data, can challenge us to ask, what are our deepest, our most authentic, ultimate concerns? On the brink of a potential paradigm shift from homo sapiens, from wise humans, to homo deus, god-like humans, which we sort of reached mid-20th century with the atomic bomb, but we're just uh, continuing in that direction. So God-like humans augmented through algorithms, augmented through nanotechnology, augmented through data processing that's in our glasses, in our clothes, in our watches, in our contacts, maybe even eventually implanted in our brains. In the wake of that happening, we have the opportunity to ask ourselves anew, what are people for? What are people for? What might they be for? What might we want them to be for? If we allow the answer to be the so-called bottom line of corporate profit alone, then we are headed toward some form of dystopia along the lines of George Orwell's 1984. 
But there are alternative paths in which we, the people, demand a global ethic such as the triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit. Profit is still a factor, but it is balanced against the well-being of people and the long-term sustainability of this planet and the diverse life forms on it. Earlier, I quoted verse 3 of hymn 145 as resonant with the themes of Harari's book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, that we, you, you, seek to create a freedom that reveres the past but trusts the dawning future more. In contrast to orthodoxies which tend to be focused on and limited by the past, we tend to be more of a future-oriented people. And that's really hopeful to me. Some of you may have seen, you can Google this, Google it. If you haven't seen it before, check with our Google overlords. They're keeping track of it for us. Uh, Religion News Service recently did a, a comprehensive survey of how all the different religious movements in the U.S. responded to the same-sex marriage decisions and things that have come since then. Right there at the top, Unitarian Universalism, by far the most accepting of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, asexual, intersexual questioning people and their families and that's incredibly meaningful to me to be part of a movement that is at the leading edge of social change uh, we don't always get it right but that's incredibly that's the time when we did when we stood on the side of love uh, for decades and did that important work so we tend to be a future-oriented people And as I conclude, a helpful guide into living into such a future responsibly comes from the fourth and final verse of that historic hymn sung back in 1960 as the Unitarians and the Universalists were consolidating. It goes like this. Prophetic church, the future waits your liberating ministry. Go forward in the power of love and proclaim the truth that makes us free. 